Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm William Hosea, and welcome to this edition of Bring It On. We are a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening. I'm James Sanders. In today's broadcast, with the social unrest taking place nationally and locally, you will also learn more about Bloomington United's August 27th evening of solidarity with Rabbi Sue Silberg, director of the Helene G. Simon Hillel Foundation at Indiana University, and Doug Botter, director of the LGBTQ Plus Cultural Center at Indiana University. All in the next hour on Bring It On. But first up, back with us for another conversation on black films and in particular, When They See Us, a 2019 American drama web television miniseries created, co-written, and directed by Ava DuVernay for Netflix and also intriguing program initiatives at the IU Black Film Center and Archives is bringing on recurring guest Dr. Terry Francis, Associate Professor, Cinema and Media Studies and Director the Black Film Center Archive at the Media School at Indiana University. Dr. Francis, that was a long title, and welcome to Bring It On. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I need a cigarette. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Thanks. I'm glad to be back again. Thanks for having me, okay. and I'm looking forward to the conversation. And we're always glad to have you on. So we mentioned the uh, miniseries on Netflix, When They See Us. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I got had an opportunity to watch a little bit of that i'm going to finish it up but in the meantime what what are your thoughts on that hmm, i have many thoughts okay. um, i think what i often think whenever um i don't know whenever i sit down to watch something i'm asking myself well whose story is this this one's really intriguing because the title ref- seems to refer to two sets of people like when they see us Who's the us? Who's the they? And what exactly is that dynamic? Um, this story, uh, you know, of uh, the now exonerated five that we knew for decades as the Central Park Five, um, has had another public life um, on the news, of course, but in the Sarah Burns and Ken Burns documentary, the Central Park Five. So my other question is, well, what is this? series offer us that the documentary has left um, either incomplete um, or uh, or totally undone and what's the relationship going to be between those things so i'm i'm really glad that uh ava duvernay mm-hmm. produced this mini series because it fills in a lot of blanks you know it tells a complete backstory and it and it it talks about or they, they get into the individual family stories and, yeah and, you know I think that's one of the elements that the series offers the which is a dramatized series mm-hmm. it's not a documentary I think that's really important yeah. um, that it offers us something 
more in terms of the closeness to the boys when they're boys in this story. Uh, we see their faces more closely. Like in the in um, in the Burns the Burns and Burns documentary, um, you're a lot of times looking at the boys through sur- uh, the uh, not surveillance footage, but the um, the um, the you know the police department footage. Yeah. So it's a grainy image. It's a far away image. We're looking at newspaper clippings. Um, so it's uh, it's a different kind of view. Here we have their faces, um, not their literal faces, but a, a, a portrayal, um, you know, by a person onto which we can kind of imagine what they were feeling, and we have um, a close relationship with them. When I saw the documentary, that was close enough for me. I I I don't it's I don't need a face, you know. Just yeah. you say to me, five boys imprisoned um they did not do this uh that's that's i don't need to see their um more of their specific kinds of suffering um but i think it's really important to think about this the way that the the series has been embraced by so many different audiences thanks um i like what you said um I found it uh, kind of inverse. I, I saw, also watched the Ken Burns documentary, and um, I saw the facts. I felt like I saw all the facts, and I um, had some very visceral feelings behind it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm cool with that. You know, well, I'm, I'm not cool with the injustice, but I'm cool with seeing what I saw. I didn't felt I didn't need to see a dramatization of it. Yeah. But once I saw the the series, the four-part series, when they see us on Netflix, um, it just was heartbreaking for me to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, But I felt that um, I did myself a great service, and I feel like others will um, be served by watching this because you get to to put yourself in the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Me growing up in Memphis, Tennessee with a single parent, my mom was rarely around um, after school, and all those um, events, she didn't know what we were doing half the time, and so you know, we we were boys. We lied and we hung out with our friends. And any you given, lied, man, <laughs> as a little boy, you know, <laughs> as a teenager. Yeah. But and it's interesting. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting part of the documentary. Uh, sorry, of the dramatization because it puts us into contact with an entirely different era of parenting. For sure, you know, for sure, mm-hmm. and. You know, in any given moment, we could have found ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, the naivete of, you know, boys are, we we like to think, you know, things are fair. You know, that, you know, our truths will stand and people will believe us and, you know, the truth will ultimately come, come out. But that's not the case in so many circumstances. And we perish for it. You know, um, I'm, I'm only speaking from my perspective as a as a black man. You know, we perish for what we don't know. And in the series, we got to see that not only from the boys' perspective, but from the perspective of the parents. They thought if they just acquiesced to whatever the detectives told them, then they would get to go home. You know, now, who in that situation gets to go home after confessing to something that heinous? You know, so... You have, you know, there's blame in that and just, you know, a certain sense of naiveness to um, to go around, you know, and it's just, you know, turns out to be tragic. Yeah. 
Mm. I think we all probably have a good sense of how we would uh, respond if one of our children were caught in that situation. But the one young man, Yusuf Salam, his mother was the only one that went in there and demanded her rights and sure. took her son home that night without having to post bail or mm. without him being charged. Mm. And um, of course, there were no lawyers mm. present. But but it just I just wonder why none of the other parents thought to do that. And I'm assuming they just didn't know. Or maybe they were just in so much shock mm -hmm. from that situation. And the police were, according to the miniseries, which is probably true, the police were very aggressive and heavy-handed. Mm -hmm. And so they, they, people would be easily intimidated. I think they were afraid, and there was a language <coughs> barrier with one of yeah. the guys. Um, so I think their own fear. The moment, I mean, I... I'm trying to think of like how to phrase this, but I remember the moment early in the dramatization where, um, what's the actor's name? The one from The Wire who plays the dad of... I Michael, just know him as Michael Omar. Okay, you Michael know K. Omar. Williams. That's Michael, name, Michael K. Williams? Okay. Yes, Michael K. Williams. But um, yeah, his scar and everything. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a moment very early on. Um, I mean, it's just a few minutes in where his face is in close-up and he realizes he could lose his child. And I, I'm not sure if we know yet that he himself had been incarcerated. So it's also sort of this horrific return for him. He and his wife, they're doing a lot of the right things. Um, a warm, loving home, super sweet to each other, right? Like we see yeah. um, DeVerney shows us this lovely home life and then it's interrupted. Um, by the state, and it's all captured on um, on Williams's face. And I said, I cannot watch this. I know this story. It's enough. I don't need to to have the wounded, dead, bloody body in front of me to know what has happened. So I um, so then I I turned it off and went to other things and found myself really reflecting on questions like who is the audience for this and am I the audience um, having watched the documentary and I remember vividly um, sitting in um, a movie theater at West 4th Street right across from the basketball court the famous basketball court in West 4th Street in Manhattan um, and watching this it's Sunday morning I want to say a 10 a.m. screening they have those in New York and I watched it I think there were not that many people in the theater weeping we, the in, from beginning to end, when you realize the vulnerability of all of us mm -hmm. um, as seen through these boys and their families. And all of that for me was captured in um, Michael Williams's face. And, um, and I, I was uh, lost at that point. So then, however, I asked myself, like, who is the audience and am I the audience? Um, and what kind of like, who am I to this? Um, to, not to the story, but to this movie, mm -hmm. a four-part dramatization on Netflix, among all kinds of stuff, yeah. romantic comedies, um, and the stuff that I watch, 90 Day Fiance, am I really <laughs> switching from 90 Day to this? Like, you know what I mean? All of this kind of stuff. And, and I think it's something that's really common in media 
that is that it is always this really contradictory space where there are people who are coming to the story, oh my God, I can't believe this. I never knew this. Mm -hmm. Or I can relate to this. I feel this. And I think I think particularly for the black spectator, um, we experience each other's traumas. Um, I'm not a young black man, um, just kind of living about life, but I understand. But I'm connected. I feel like what happens to him happens to me. Do you know what I mean? So, I watching it is like a relating. But can I once again? go into this mourning, really, this grief for the America that might have been, where the sense of safety, like, you know, what will that bring me? And I ultimately just was able to watch it because I left my position as somebody who could relate and decided to treat this like abolitionist literature, uh, right? Like Frederick Douglass isn't writing to the slaves. Slavery is terrible. Mm-hmm. They're aware. He's writing to those who are able to affect freedom. And I think that there's something about this that just makes me think of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, it's very dramatic, right? Like people are in captivity. And through complete happenstance, the entire case is turned. That's the hallmark of the melodramatic um, novel is like the the long lost cousin comes back and you know, tells a secret and then the whole story comes apart and that's basically what happens with this person Ruiz or whoever that confesses and they Mateus. find Mateus who um, confesses and the boys are are um, eventually exonerated um, and thinking of it as abolitionist literature like okay this is in a way for our white friends to get it together, to be mobilized, to be empathetic, um, and and to be educated on a story that I think a lot of people might have forgotten, mm-hmm. um, in particular, the role of our current president in this whole horror with these boys, um, and to try to bridge that gap between when people who are aware and who experience racism talk about racism and those who are just like oh really is america is that happening so like that there's always that divide and there's something about when they see us that i think is trying to do this type of work kind of bridging yeah you know two two things i think it Mm. was uh very interesting the way you explained who she made who it was for um, I had not considered it from that perspective, you know, people um, who were maybe, who, who could not relate to, to the experience that those young men of color uh, mm-hmm. had that night. But honestly, isn't there room in there for everybody to take something away from it? There must be. It's the most watched film on yeah. Netflix or something like that. So yeah, I think that's right. I think what I'm saying is that with any movie, Mm -hmm. especially when we have expectations put upon it to address racism, to represent us. I think that's really specific, like to feel recognized and feel seen. Um, 
the it's always going to be a little bit off and a little bit complicated because it does speak to multiple audiences at the same time. When they see us is addressed to a they out there and also to us. And that is exactly the paradox and the power, to your point, of its appeal. And you mentioned that uh, at one point you didn't want to see any more Mm -hmm. of it. When I started watching it, I I realized early on that I would have to kind of pace myself while I'm watching this mini mini series because in in light of everything uh, that we've been witnessing through social media, uh, phone cams, that's that's just one more uh, on the pile, you know. And so as I'm watching uh, just the first episode, I'm watching the, the blatant abuse disregard for for the law those police officers actually broke the law over and over and over and they got away with it but i feel myself getting angry and angrier and so i could watch one episode and step away from it and come back and watch the rest of it and yet i don't know sometimes anger is what's called for let the fire burn this is true um and when you mention about um who this is for um, there are tons of people who didn't know about this and, you know, who don't read books and don't watch documentaries. Um, I think it's it's great for, you know, all, all people because it's not just a race issue. It's not a class issue. It's, a, it's, a, it's an existential thing. Like, how can you treat a certain person this way? How can you, um, how can you persecute a person when knowingly knowing that they're innocent. I mean, these people knew, the prosecutor knew, you know, that's in the documentary, it's also in uh, the series. And so I I see in particular, like kids who are watching this, who are thinking, oh, can the world be this unfair? Yes, it yes. can. You know, can I be, you know, this naive? Um, yes, do I need to know my rights? Absolutely. And those are things that, you know, as children, we don't think about. You know, we're thinking about girls and school and whatever else. Um, in the documentary, the boys said that that they were, you know, just happy that they were out of school and they could just go hang out with their friends. You know, so you're thinking about those type of things. And in the blink of an eye, it's kind of like their their lives were taken from them um, by people who just wanted to, to cover themselves yeah. um, and enhance their careers. Um, and that's that's the very tragic part about it, because even though they've received, you know, um, exoneration and they've received, you know, million dollars in settlements, their lives will never be the same. And they've been damaged forever. Um, uh, something that really touched me uh, was uh, Antron McCrary's um, uh, interview in the uh, the Oprah When They See Us Now. Um he was choked up for most of the interview because he is still damaged. He said that there has been irreparable damage caused and he will never forgive his dad who has passed and he won't even seek therapy. So he is still hurting, even though this happened in 1989. And that broke my heart because it's like these people took their whole lives. Yeah. You know, with mm-hmm. impunity. Mm-hmm. And almost got away with it. Yeah. Almost. So, um, and in the time that we have left, let's go ahead and pivot to the Black Film Archives. Mm. Okay. So let me ask you, what would you like 
the listening audience to know about the Black Film Archive at, at IU? Everything that I can, that is running through my mind right now. I mean, um, that we are both an archive in the, an, and a center. So we are um, an historical repository of primary documents and artifacts relative to the black presence in film, um, whether it's scholarship, whether it's um, a headstone, some costumes, letters, scripts, all of those types of materials um, are within our collection. And, um, and we, we are a house of memory, right? Like we're the, we stand between forgetting and, and also the, um, you know, the particular framing of trespass and illegitimacy and unbelonging that is continually placed on black people and black creativity, whatever it is you're doing, wherever you are, um, well, even if it's not specifically law enforcement, um, there is that sense of um, of just not legitimate, you know, not there. And so our work is in large part, or the stakes of our work, is to posit that presence and that creativity, that power, and that belonging in the American story um, as a critic. Um, and sometimes as, um, you know, as heroes, as creators. Um, the other part of our work, sometimes drawing directly from our collections, is, um, is to be a living, breathing center of, um, of Black film conversation. So it's a place where we program, and this semester we have kind of a really eclectic program. Um, on the one hand, we have an art piece that is all about the moon. It's uh, two 16 millimeter films uh, that are projected in a very dark room. And it's, it just has to be experienced. It's, um, it's an experimental work, it's a concept work. Um, and it's also, I think, really thinking about something that we don't, like a lot of our cameras have the sound of the old time 35 millimeter cameras and sometimes movies when they want to evoke nostalgia or the olden days they'll yeah. have the sound of the projector sure. you're going to experience the sound of the projector and see film print and see um, what that whole process is like um, together with these um, moon images um, and uh, and then we also have young filmmakers coming through we have it's a series called once haunted it's a series of short films um, made by all women filmmakers, black women filmmakers, who are exploring the residue of history and also that creepy feeling of ha wanting something, um, feeling like you've lost something, not quite sure what it is. And it takes, you know, these weird, sometimes monstrous shapes in our dreams or in other people and stuff like that. Um, so that's in mid-September. And, um, you know, and then we're showing a great African film, Hyenas, in November. Um, gorgeous. I basically had to see everything based on this one 
still image that I saw from it. Um, I put it up on our blog and it was like, I need to see everything that came before this moment. I want to see everything after that twice. So it's just, um, it's a range. We have scholars coming in as well to talk about popular culture and video games. Um, all of our events are free. They're open to the public. Um, right now, I think everything is on campus, just in different parts of mm -hmm. campus. Um, and I'd love to do more stuff, you know, at the library and other places. Um, so uh, we have a blog. Um, it's a WordPress. I think the way the easiest way to find it is just Google blog um, Black Film Center Archive WordPress, and that'll pop you into it. It's super easy. You just subscribe to it. And um, I'm about to say this on the air on Mondays. And I think also Wednesdays, I will be posting on this blog something about what we're doing and um, and what we're thinking about. So subscribe to the blog or follow us on Twitter, Black Film Center, Facebook, Instagram, and um, and just kind of hang out with us. Did I say too much? And if I can't no. remember that, no. I can Google it, right? Yes, you can okay. Google it. Twitter, Black Film Center Archive, boom, you're there. How do you all select the films that you um, you show? Mm, many different ways. It depends on a few different things. So one of the things that I get to do as director is bring my research into this forum. Um, and a lot of my research has to do with experimental films and um, uh, new films, black films. But I also work on Josephine Baker in the 30s. Yes. So, um, so it's like that gives us a big range of stuff to play with. Um, but sometimes it might be an anniversary of a film, um, like uh, Do the Right Thing. It's uh, the 25th anniversary this year. Um, oh, Julie, has it been that long? I've uh, never seen. I said the same thing. God. I did, but that was our 1989, right? The same year wow. of the wow. of the five. It was a hot, horrific year. Um, and that film, in its own way, really captures something about, you know, American life. Um, so that's one of the ways um, I come up with stuff, or I might be collaborating with someone else. Um, uh, it might be um, uh, wanting to feature something out of our own collections. We also do, ex you know, small exhibitions of the artifacts. Um, as well as uh, show films. And I don't know, I try to keep my, like I'm the main curator. I really work hard to stay aware of what's going on. I have a broad kind of network of filmmakers. So it's like, who can I get on the phone to say yes right now? Um, and, um, you know, like the moon landing coming up was a kind of interesting moment to me. Like what are the black imaginations of outer space? Um, yeah. So last, I think it was March, um, I showed Sunrise Space is the Place. Um, the series I'm thinking of for the next semester is called Love, I'm in Love. Nice. I can't wait. I see everyone in here smiling. I want the listening audience to know <laughs> everyone in here just lit up. It's focused on the 70s. Um, it's, I think there's potential to go to other decades, and I could just program that forever. But it's going to be a few films from the 70s because the series at IU Cinema have to be really tightly coherent and academic but I think it'll be called Love I'm in Love now you it's open to the public right yes so if I were to visit the film archive um do I am I only able to look at the feature films or can I select make a selection 
and and watch yeah. a particular movie? Well, the archive part of our mission is kind of is a little bit different in that the film screenings and the public stuff that's listed on the website and that's um, that we tweet about. All those are the open events. The doing research at the Black Film Center Archive is a kind of separate thing. So just email us at bfca at indiana.edu and describe your interest. And then we make an appointment for you to come in and see the horror films or the detect the black detective films or what have you okay and with that dr francis unfortunately we are are out of time but we always have good conversation when you come to visit us and we look forward to the next time yay me too thanks for having me our thanks to bring it on recurring guest dr terry francis director of the black film center archive for joining us tonight to share her impressions on when They See Us, the 2019 American Drama Web Television miniseries created, co-written, and directed by Ava DuVernay for Netflix. And she also shared an overview of the up- upcoming program lineup at the IU Black Center and Archives. Keep it up. That's it. <laughs> Thank you.
You just heard Inner City Blues, Make Me Wanna Holler, sung by Marvin Gaye, the climactic song of his 1971 landmark album, What's Going On? The song depicts the ghettos and bleak economic situations of inner city America and the emotional effects these have on inhabitants. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. At the beginning of the show, we shared that we will be joined by Rabbi Sue Silverberg, director of the Helene G. Simon Hillel Foundation at Indiana University, and Doug Bowder, director of the LGBTQ Plus Culture Center at Indiana University. Given the mounting social unrest taking place nationally and locally, we have invited them to come on and discuss the Bloomington United's August 27th evening of solidarity. The theme of this gathering, which will be at 5.30 p.m. at the Monroe County Courthouse in Bloomington United, We Are Stronger Than Hate. Rabbi Silberberg and Mr. Barter, welcome to Bring It On. We are glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay, so uh, let's talk about your August 27th event, Evening of Solidarity. A little history, maybe? Sure. So Bloomington United started... um, What's it been? 15, 20, 20 years 20 ago. years ago. 20 years ago. 99. Um, in 1999, when our city was being littered by, with um, hate literature by um, somebody from the World Church of the Creator. Yes. I use that lo- loosely. Um, and um, he, was, he was basically um, a from a neo-Nazi hate group. And the mayor called us together and said that he was very concerned because he knew that this particular neo-Nazi group was one that quickly escalated to violence if they perceived that there was no pushback from the community against their message. And the us who were called together included the black community, the gay community, the Jewish community, the Asian community. It was a wonderful coalition of leaders in the community who came together. So, yes. When you say black community, was that churches and NAACP? Uh, I'm not sure if the NAACP was directly involved, but some of the churches. The churches. I'm sorry. Some of the churches were involved. Uh, Beverly Calendar Anderson, who was. Safe and Civil City. No, she wasn't safe and civil at that point. Her husband was a minister. Her former husband was a minister. Right. So churches and individual citizens, I don't know that the NAAC was represented specifically. They will be this time. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. So basically, we decided that we would form a group called Bloomington United, and um, we we didn't know exactly what we were going to do, but we felt like there were more people in the community that were opposed to this message of hate that, that they were finding because we had so many phone calls and so many people who were upset that we felt like if we did a w- if we did something to help people show what it was that they were upset about and show that there were more people upset than there were people who who agreed with this message of hate, 
that that would be a start. And so we um, we decided to have a rally at the time on the courthouse square, um, and we had probably a couple thousand people who came. And at the same time, thousand, huh? it was mm-hmm. it was really huge. We were we didn't know what to expect. And then at the same time, we put out a call in the Herald Times and said that we wanted to do these signs that said Bloomington United, no hate, not in our yards, not in our town, not anywhere not anywhere and they were about a dollar assigned to print back then and we didn't know how we were going to get the money because we were just a group of students of uh, people who just all gotten together Mm -hmm. a coalition of concerned citizens and we put an article in the paper and said if you want to donate money so we can have these signs all over our city we will print them and we actually had the money sent to Hillel and we raised so much money that we printed at least 10,000 signs, possibly, I'm trying to remember now if it was 10,000 or 20,000, but it was at least 10,000 signs, possibly 20,000 signs. And what was really incredible about it is that no check was more than about 25 or $50. So that's how many checks, it was like this flood of checks that came in because there wasn't internet back then. Um, So it was all by checks. And um, we raised money, and virtually everywhere you looked in town, there were signs that were showing how many people cared and how many people were opposed to this message of hate. And that created a climate for ongoing work. Sadly, um, even though the rally was held and the signs were distributed around town, a Korean student was shot and killed the following summer. Um, his name was Wan Jun Yoon, and we then had the sad duty of uh, organizing a community response to hate, which Janet Reno attended and a representative of the White House, and again, several thousand people attended that. We knew there was uh, a, a need to do something more, and so out of that, we organized something called Study Circles. Beverly Calendar Anderson was involved in that, and then... Um, conversations on race on the campus, and we tried to do forums on representing the concerns of those different communities. So over the years, we've done a variety of things, but then we were quiet for a while. Mm -hmm. Sue returns from the concentration camp tour a year or so ago when Charlottesville happened and said, I think we need to get Bloomington United reorganized. And unfortunately, um, we've seen so much hate in the community in the world since that time and I think what's really sad and um, I learned this at the concentration camps when I was there is that I don't think the majority of people are hateful and the majority of people want to see this message of hate but people start to feel powerless very very quickly and feel that they don't have a voice and each person who doesn't agree with the message of hate begins to feel as if they're the only one because the white supremacists now are so loud and have take up so much airtime and airspace mm-hmm. that people start to feel like they have no power and they have no control. And once they start to feel that apathetic, they feel like there's nothing they can do. And so it's really important for us to come forward and say, wait a minute, we are not the only one. You are not the only one. We are actually the majority of people, and we have to do something to show how we feel and we have to fight against this hate. So, go ahead. So in your you all's opinion, um, is that how the Bloomington community feels now, um, especially with the, uh, with the signs, the KKK signs, and the farmer's market um, incidents? Um, how 
is the Bloomington community. I fair? will say it's a different time than it was 20 years ago, and we don't know how the whole community feels about it, but the folks who will be speaking that night represent uh, the NAACP, um, the Asian community, uh, the Latino community, uh, representative of the mosque and, um, and the synagogue. Uh, so w- we know there are voices that want to be heard. But quite frankly, we're hearing that there's, um, there's, a, there's a lot of anti-establishment feelings mm-hmm. out there. And so we, we don't know what the response will be that night. We just felt it was important to repeat what we did 20 years ago and give citizens a chance to say, there are folks who work together quietly and have done so over the years. We want to stand together again. So there's still some uncertainty, yeah. just like it was 20 years ago when you first stood up your organization. Right? Well, there was, <coughs> I think there was less uncertainty then. I mean, there was not, there were not competing groups um, as such. People just felt this act by this one individual in town yeah. needed to be, res- the, uh, a response was needed. We now have a lot of tension out there. Um, so. So, uh, Rabbi, when you decided to revive uh, Bloomington United, was that in response to the uh, situation at the farmer's market? No, this was t- uh, over, it was probably a year, ago. A year ago last summer. So a year, it's been over a year ago. And it was really because I came back from mm-hmm. from the concentration camps. And when I was there, I just felt so, I mean, all I could do walking around was cry and pray the whole time that I was there. And I felt like, I was hearing this message of of hate there and this message of how this had happened and this message of powerlessness. Our, our tour guide who took us around kept saying about how there was nothing they could do. It wasn't this the camps I went to were in Poland, and she kept saying, mm-hmm. well, it wasn't our fault as Polish people because there was nothing we could do. I know I would disagree with that, but but that was what she said. She said, you know, there was nothing we could have done. We didn't have any power. We had no control over anything. Now, the reality is that's not true from everything that, that I've learned and from many people. But but I think the piece that, that is true is the powerlessness that people feel. And also um, what we were seeing in this country was a lot of hatred. We were seeing white supremacy starting to rise. And I felt like we have to give people a voice and have to let people know. I do not believe, I still don't believe that the majority of people in this country like the hate that, that's being spewed. I think that the majority of people are good people who care and who, who are not in favor. So we started gathering leaders together well over a year ago um, just to be present. So uh, the idea was we'd be a response team to if the Klan came to town mm-hmm. or if something happened on a larger scale that was affecting the community. And then some weeks ago, we started giving thought to it's time for some show of solidarity. And that's what led to the farmer's market is related, but it's not solely about the farmer's market. Right. It's bigger than that. It is much bigger than that. But the timing is good here. I hope. To address that. I hope. And and just for the audience, a little background on the farmer's market situation. Um, One of the vendors was alleged to have ties to a neo-Nazi group and uh, a couple of people started protesting and they started getting death threats from uh, uh, white supremacist organizations and I think uh, one of them even threatened to come down here and and bring more people in from the outside from outside of Bloomington and uh, here we are yeah that's just a short of it 
Yeah, and I would say too with the farmer's market is the reason we say that this isn't just about the farmer's market is because I think that part of the reason that people feel so passionately about having this vendor removed from the farmer's market is because that's something tangible that can be done to say we're standing up against white supremacy. But the problem (coughs) is even if the vendor were to be removed, that's not going to get rid of white supremacy. That's not going to get rid of all of us who feel marginalized. I feel marginalized as a Jew. I think everybody who is a minority group right now is feeling marginalized and is feeling hated and is feeling the tension. And so it's much bigger than the farmer's market. It's about the climate in our in our country right now and that we have to stand up to that climate and stand up and say, we are opposed to this. We want to stand together because I really believe that what the white supremacists want most is to divide all of us mm-hmm. who are minorities because in numbers, if all of the minority groups come together, we're bigger, way bigger than white supremacy and way bigger even than than this hate. Yeah. The other sense of the, the timing of this is we wanted to start while the new students were back in town. We want to give them a strong impression of, uni- of Bloomington at its best. And I know <coughs> some of them have heard about the farmer's market. I spoke to a group of RAs, resident assistants, and new students about this very event, and some of them applauded because they knew what had happened here over the summer. And that creates a sense of concern at least, maybe fear among students, and so we're encouraging students to at least know about this and maybe show up next Tuesday as mm-hmm. well. So you you developed an effective counter-response when you first uh, organized. Um, <coughs> how do you, do you intend to uh, duplicate that or, or do a little bit more? Uh, what's different we, about it this time? The difference, I would say, is the climate is different. You know, we don't have have the strong voice of uh, tolerance and respect at the national level. So the, the whole climate, you know, uh, around the country is different. Um, but what I wanted to say is among the things we did beyond uh, – the gathering uh, 20 years ago was, as I mentioned, study circles, conversations on race, a number of forums, and I think our group is committed to working beyond this evening of solidarity to sit down and, and have meaningful conversations across uh, the divisions that exist. Um, I'm not sure how that'll look. We were hoping to bring in uh, a, a national speaker. Uh, early in the fall. That's not going to happen that with the speaker we had in mind, but we'll continue to work at that. So there might be a community, a town hall meeting or community forum, again, r- regarding these issues, so that not just a few speakers have a chance to say things, but that the citizens themselves will come together, we hope. And also, we're open, I think, to creative ideas. I think one of yeah. the, the most important things is is that we have to be open to new ideas and to creative ideas. I think one thing we're committed to is that our responses be nonviolent and be responses that we include anyone who wants to be part of this community and part of this min- and feels marginalized is able to express and have a voice. And is committed to nonviolence. Exactly. Yeah. Which uh, brings me to my next question. <coughs> With the people that you have uh, working with you now, do you have any young people? Mm -hmm. 
good question. Y- young is a relative term. Um, <laughs> uh, I think most of the group right now is middle age. But I, again, in speaking to uh, a number of students during orientation this last week, I, I imagine that we can get students. We did have students involved in designing the uh, Bloomington United brochure and, I mean, sticker and such. We've had students involved over the years, and then it's been quiet this summer because the students mm-hmm. are gone. Yeah. I have no reason to believe that we couldn't get them involved, and hopefully that night they'll be a, We're going to have people sign a pledge that evening um, against hate. We're hoping everyone will, and that can be done online and at the uh, gathering of solidarity. And... Yes, I hope we can get young people and high school students, a- anybody, and college for that students. Yeah, and, and good, I think we question. will. We've been we've been putting it um we've been putting it out all over IU as well, hoping that we will get college students to attend. And and actually, uh, what I also wanted to ask was, do you think it would be a good idea to have those uh, students or that younger generation in positions of leadership? Absolutely, definitely. Yeah, and it hasn't happened yet because. We've been working over the summer pretty much. Mm-hmm. I always call us a ragtag group of volunteers. And, um, you know, you're nudging us on uh, to do something important. Yes, you are. That's really good because um, I hope we can get some student leaders involved. Well, when uh, the rabbi mentioned that you, you were open to ideas and Absolutely. Uh, new ideas and creativity, that immediately made me think about the young folks. Yep. Absolutely. And we want to do we, – we're doing what we know right now, but we are always doing – we're, we're always open to doing new ideas, creative ideas. Um, and one of the things also that we did, and it came up just in conversation years ago, was we had an Every Minute Counts campaign because mm-hmm. there were a, a group of haters that came and used to go across from Bloomington Bagel um, in People's, People's Park, Park. Mm-hmm. and have horrible, hateful things to say about all different minority groups. And we did a campaign where we, we invited people not to go listen to them and instead to go down the street to Trinity Church, which is down the street, we said, don't go listen to that message. Instead, go down the street and make a pledge for every minute that that group is spewing their nonsense and their hate. Um, make a pledge, to so five cents a minute that they're there, 10 cents a minute, whatever it was. And then all the money that we raised was divided between all the different groups that they disparaged. And that was just another creative response. Um, they didn't come back too often either after that. And students that. were very involved in that <laughs> yes, effort. Yes, they were. I can remember one student in particular who felt so empowered by what he did in standing up for what he believed. It was a really wonderful experience. So you're reminding me of that again. Yeah. Awesome. So um, I know you mentioned some things that you were going to do after this event on the 27th. Um, but do you have anything planned um to interface with uh, different politicians um, on maybe the the city level and the state level? State level, not at this point. The mayor has invited us to a number of conversations more, again, related to the the farmer's market. So uh, we have been present at the farmer's market some weeks. Um, He's involved us in conversations. And that night he and uh, the county commissioners will speak. So um, we didn't want this event to be seen as a political (coughs) event, but we certainly both understand the need to work with political leaders. And um, uh, we've had great support from City Hall in that regard. Um, Jim Sims, who's Mm -hmm. actually representing the NAACP, also obviously is on the city council, and he and I have talked about 
things down the road. So uh, I know we have support uh, among some of the local politicians. I'm sure I'm guessing all of the local politicians. Awesome. Now, I'm really curious about the young Korean student that, that you mentioned was killed. Uh, what, what year was that? And, and was his death a product of hate? Yes. Um, so uh, Benjamin Smith, who was the student that Sue referred to, um, caught up in this World Church of the Creator, was actually an IU student for a short time. And he was the one who was distributing this hate literature. On the 4th of July, he shot and killed Ricky Birdsong, a coach at Northwestern, African-American coach. He wounded some Jewish and Asian people in Chicago. And then he came to Bloomington and shot and killed a young uh, Korean grad student who was entering the church on the 4th of July. It was a Sunday. It was a horrendous experience. It was a, there was a, it was a two-state hate crime because it happened in both Illinois here. And um, I remember the mayor announcing at the fireworks display what had happened and the, the, the community was just devastated by it. Um, and then we ended up having a memorial service a few days later at the MAC where hundreds of people f filled the lawn outside. Yeah. Um, it, it's one of those defining moments, I think, in the Bloomington history that helped us all to realize hate can be very um, instrumental in creating. Okay, we have about two minutes left. And in that two minutes, I'm going to ask you, uh, number one, what is your ultimate goal here? What's the end game? And number two, how can people contact your organization? I would say the end goal is to empower people to, to find small and quiet ways to, to stand up against hate, um, to build bridges with neighbors who they may not know who are different in some way. Um, and what was the second I part of the question? Well, I would also say, and to feel empowered and to understand that when they're standing up against hate, they're not the only one. And so that they feel part of, part of a large community that says, we will not tolerate this hate in our lives and we want to make things change. Um, so that would be, I think, another very important goal. And I think to get in touch with us, um, we have a Facebook page, Bloomington United, um, and also they can um, email either myself at hillel at indiana.edu. Or me at dbauder, D-B-A-U-D-E-R at indiana.edu. Okay, and with that, um, Rabbi Silverberg and Doug Bowder, we want to thank you for coming on. Um, we wish you, wish you much success, and maybe you can come back and uh, give us an update later on. That would be great. Would thanks be great. for having thank us Thank you on. for having thank us. You. Thank you. Our thanks to bringing on recurring guest Dr. Terry Francis, director of the Black Film Center Archive, for joining us tonight to share her impressions on When They See Us, a 2019 American drama web television miniseries created, co-written, and directed by Ava DuVernay for Netflix and for sharing an overview of the upcoming program lineup at the IU Black Film Center and Archives. Also, our thanks to Sue Silberberg, director of the Helene G. Simon Hillel Foundation at Indiana University, and Doug Botter, director of the LGBTQ Cultural Center at Indiana University for discussing the Bloomington United event, Evening of Solidarity, entitled Bloomington United, We Are Stronger Than Hate, this takes place August 27th at 5.30 p.m. at the Monroe County Courthouse. 
Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Yeah, uh, Miss Greenberg. Tonight's board engineer was Sean Tall LaFont. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm James Sanders. Tune in next Monday, August 26th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.